Hi, this is Father Tim, and welcome to RTB, Read the Bible Podcast. RTB offers students a Bible reading plan with commentary and questions and answers as they go on the journey to read the Bible. Okay, good evening to everybody. Welcome back to RTB. We are cruising through our second semester here of, uh, sorry, the fall semester, the second year, where we are covering the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Matthew, and then the rest of the New Testament epistles, not including John. John will be next fall. And just going to dive right in as quickly as we can, first with a bit of a review, because today we're going to cover the Gospel of Matthew, and last week we covered the Gospel of Mark. And as we went through Mark, we read it a specific way, and as I said, um, as we're reading the Gospels, there are many ways to approach the Gospels, many different ways to study them. So what I'm giving you is not the only way, and it's not even that in-depth of a way, but it is a way to read the Gospels. And how we read the Gospel of Mark last week was through narrative, understanding that we're getting the big picture narrative, and that Mark is the Gospel that answers the question, who is Jesus? And the answer to that question is he's the Messiah, the Christ. He is the Christ. And then that's the first half of, of Mark. I'm sorry, I said Matthew for Mark. And then the second half of Mark is, well, what kind of Messiah is he? What side of Christ is he? And the answer is he's a suffering Christ. And understanding that Matthew wants us to see of how this suffering Christ is the fulfillment of, of what the Jewish people were waiting for. So that gospel of Mark is this beautiful story of who is Jesus and what kind of Christ is he? And that was the lens that we were going to use to read through that gospel. Today, we're going to jump into Matthew. And interestingly enough, over 90% of Mark is located, is in Matthew. So these two are very much dependent upon each other in some way. And the way that that dependence works um, has been studied for for many years. And there's not really a clear, conclusive evidence or or, or proposal that kind of makes sense. So what we're going to do is we're going to push past a lot of that sort of interesting questions of was Mark written first or was Matthew written first? Was Mark dependent on, on Matthew or was Matthew dependent on Mark? And just dive into the text. And how we're going to do that or how we're going to read big picture Matthew is to approach it as the gospel that answers the question of what is the kingdom of God? It's actually the gospel where Matthew is the gospel that shows Jesus as the fulfillment of, quite specifically, the Davidic kingdom. It's the gospel that shows what the kingdom of God is and how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom. So Mark, who is Jesus? What kind of Messiah? What kind of Christ is he? And Matthew, what kind of kingdom is this Messiah coming to bring? That's the kind of overarching question that I think allows this gospel to really kind of come alive, okay? Now, as we look at the gospel of Matthew, it's sometimes referred to as the first gospel because it is the first book in the canonical New Testament. So if you open up your New Testament, it is the first gospel. And it's actually really the gospel of the early church, by far the gospel most written about, cited by all the early church fathers, and it played an incredible importance in the early church and just the understanding of who Jesus is and of course what sort of kingdom is he coming to bring. And so it really has this sort of um, 
sort of sense where um, it's been referred to by some as the most important book ever written. And I sort of like that title, the most important book ever written, because it had such an influence in the early church. And as you see that, and part of this influence in the early, early church is that much of the early church was looking at this distinction between Jews and Gentiles. What was the revelation of God to the Jewish people, and how does that make sense in the coming of the Messiah, of Jesus? And what you see in actually Matthew is far more Old Testament references than any of the other Gospels. There's over 40 direct references to, the, to Old Testament prophets or books in Matthew, and that's more than double of the next closest Gospel. Now, there's also a number of kind of hidden references and kind of unique um, foreshadowings and typologies and analogies. But as you have seen already, and we'll see if you haven't read through this, all the time Matthew is drawing upon the Old Testament, you know, saying as it was written or as it was foretold or this happened to fulfill what was written in the prophet Isaiah. And so you actually see a beautiful continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, particularly in Matthew. So it's kind of a warning to get the most out of Matthew. We have to know our Old Testament. And so many of the things that might seem strange or insignificant, you know, you'd expect something to happen one way and it goes the other, and you're kind of, what is this all about? Usually the answer is hidden in the Old Testament, okay? And that's kind of also to show that the audience for this gospel understood at least the most um, specific audience that the gospel was probably written to, or at least as attested to in much of the tradition, is that it was written to Jewish Christians, that it was written to Jews that did come to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And that's a little bit different than we saw in one sense of Mark was kind of written for that church in Rome, which certainly had Jewish Christians. But you can see that more so in Luke, which was definitely written with a much more emphasis on Gentiles, on the sort of outsiders, right? The poor, the sick, um, the gospel of mercy that, the Luke, is, that Luke is. And so you have Matthew is written for Jewish Christians. And it's kind of interesting because the earliest record of this gospel that we have, um, at least early church fathers talking about, it comes from St. Irenaeus that actually says that Matthew was writing this gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect while Peter and Paul were preaching in the city of Rome. And it's kind of interesting. So that kind of shows that this gospel, at least from our early, earliest evidence, was written very early during the lifetime of Peter and Paul and possibly written in Hebrew or even possibly Aramaic. There's some debate. Now, we don't have any copies of that. The only copies we have are of the Greek manuscripts, but it just kind of shows that this really was and is seen in the early church as a gospel for the Jewish Christian, the one who's trying to make sense of the old and the new together. Now, the author of this gospel, and as we talked about in the last two episodes, about just understanding that these gospels were written by the people that the manuscripts say they were written by. Just understand that the most plausible explanation is that this was written by Matthew. <laughs> it's the gospel according to Matthew. And there's a lot that's written in the modern scholarship, but just the most plausible sense, in my opinion, is just to understand that this was written by Matthew. And uniquely, of the four gospel writers, he is uh, one of the two that was one of what we call the Twelve Apostles. So Matthew was himself an eyewitness. He himself was a tax collector, um, which means he was literate. He knew, knew and understand um, the Jewish customs and the Roman customs and, uh, and put that literacy to use in writing this gospel. So we, actually, as we look at the 12 apostles, it makes sense that Matthew would be one of them to write. 
And so um, he was the son of Alphaeus, as it's written in the scriptures. And there's also a beautiful tradition that he preached in Ethiopia and actually uh, was martyred in Ethiopia, brought the gospel uh, to Africa. But just kind of diving into the actual gospel itself, again, the themes and the contents of this gospel is really all about the kingdom. It is the gospel of the kingdom. And again, this is not the way necessarily to read this, but this is clearly a way. And you see a lot of both modern and ancient scholarship talking about how Matthew is proclaiming the kingdom of God. So the big question as we're reading this gospel, and in a certain sense, before we even dive into this gospel, is a question which is, what is the kingdom of God? What does that mean? Or as Matthew actually uses the term, and really only he uses it, is the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom? And I'm going to start with an interesting passage. There was a priest uh, named Father Alfred, Lo- uh, I'm going to, I always script his name, Loisi, who had this famous passage about uh, understanding Jesus and his proclamation of the kingdom and its relationship to the church. Because basically what I'm going to put forward in one sense is to understand what is meant by the kingdom, we have to understand what is the church and how does the church relate to the kingdom of God. So this priest actually had this famous passage that says, Jesus came announcing the kingdom and yet what only came was the church. Jesus came announcing the kingdom, but what came was the church. And he actually uses that in sort of like a negative connotation, the saying that Jesus promised all of these great things, and we see this in the gospel, and we're drawn to that. But actually, well, we clearly see our church is broken. It's not exactly what we'd expect. Now, interestingly enough, that this priest um, ended up uh, basically dying outside of communion with Rome and actually kind of even left his priesthood and, and f- I think failed to understand both the nature of the kingdom and the nature of the church. Because I would actually say that he's right, that Jesus came announcing the kingdom, and what we got was the church, which forms part of that kingdom, okay? I think that's really important to see. So to say that this is the gospel that shows Jesus as the fulfillment of the kingdom, but very specifically the fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom, the kingdom of David in the Old Testament, which actually then, as we come to understand what that kingdom was in the Old Testament, actually helps us understand what the church is and how the church fulfills the kingdom of David, at least the promises of old in the kingdom of David. And so you'll actually get to see quite regularly throughout this gospel that Jesus is proclaimed as the son of David, as in a sense a new David, a new king, but even more so, the son of David. And this Davidic understanding is absolutely essential to show what Jesus was doing, what the kingdom of God is, and what the church is. Okay? And just before we start, a couple more key questions to kind of think through is, the question is, how many churches did Jesus found? It's a very interesting question, right? And I would argue that if you read the Gospel of Matthew, it's pretty clear he's in the business of establishing a church. And you'll see that in Matthew 16. You actually see the word ecclesia, the word church, really only appears in full 
in this Gospel of Matthew. So he's about this church building, if you will. And I'd ask the similar question, how many kingdoms of God are there? Are there multiple kingdoms of God? I think that's also an important question because I would argue as well that there is only one kingdom, right? But also if we use this term kingdom of heaven, for example, we come to understand that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God that Jesus comes preaching and proclaims that is among you or has come near to you or is at hand, depending on your translation, he's coming to say that there's an aspect of the kingdom that exists on earth but that the kingdom is ultimately where the king is, and the king is, is Jesus himself who has ascended back into heaven. And so that there's something of this one kingdom must exist on earth and in heaven. And that this kingdom that transcends heaven and earth, and earth we could say, if we understand the relationship with the church, we would expect to find a church that also exists on earth and in heaven and has a certain continuity to it. So kind of keep that in the back of your mind. And I kind of start with actually what the Catholic Church um, actually has given us as a definition for the church, because the church is something very often misunderstood. And I kind of want you to have this definition again as you read the Gospel of Matthew, because I think it will make sense of the Gospel of Matthew. So The Second Vatican Council actually defined the church quite simply with these terms, saying that the church is the kingdom of Christ present in mystery. The kingdom of Christ, we could say the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ is proclaimed as God. We we saw that in Mark. We'll see that at the end of Matthew. Present in mystery. And even that word mystery, it's a Greek word mystery, mystery. which translated in Latin is actually the word sacramentum or sacrament. That the kingdom of God present in sacrament is what we understand the church. So basically, there's a pretty bold claim that I'll put forward right at the start and have this in the back of your mind as you're reading this gospel to see if you can make sense of this. That the Catholic church is the kingdom of God on earth, which also transcends earth, and participates in the very kingdom of God in heaven, that there's a unity. And even this sense of Catholic, which means universal or worldwide, certainly means to every nation, every time, every place, but actually means even more than this world, that it transcends this world, all right? And so if we're talking about the gospel of Matthew as the gospel of the kingdom, those are nice kind of things to be thinking about. What is meant by the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven? How do we see this in the Davidic kingdom? And then how is this fulfilled in the church? And with that lens, I think you actually kind of see this gospel in a new light and you actually start to see that many of the problems we think we have in the church were actually promised all along. Okay? All right. Before we actually get into the text, let's just talk about the structure very briefly. Now, as I mentioned last time, anytime you kind of look at a structure of a, of a text, in one sense, we are kind of hoping to get a lens into the author's vision, and we may not know that exactly. So I found that structuring the Gospels are helpful to organize um, our understanding of the text, but not to get so rigid that this is, again, the only way to organize the text. And so, for example, several ways can be put forward to kind of structure the text. The first is just sort of a threefold distinction. 
where there's this threefold distinction from chapter 1 to chapter 4, asking the question, who is Jesus? From chapter 4 to 16, there's a proclamation of who this Jesus is. And then there's, from chapter 16 to the end, is the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And why some scholars point to that, because there's actually a phrase at chapter 4, verse 16, and at chapter 16, verse 20, where Matthew writes, from this time forward, Jesus began. And so he says, from this time forward, Jesus began to preach. From this time forward, Jesus began to show us his suffering. And then obviously we see the suffering. Again, a nice little way to organize, but did Matthew organize the entire thing over just those two phrases? Probably not. Um, Another way that I've also seen is really beautiful is to understand that Matthew is also the gospel of God is with us, the gospel of Emmanuel. And you see that right in the beginning, right? Where he actually draws upon Isaiah and talks about in the incarnation, we have the fulfillment of Isaiah of that beautiful promise that God is with us, Emmanuel. So God is with us in Matthew 1.23. And then you actually see God is with us in Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, where he says, where two or three are gathered, there I am. That Jesus is God with us in the church. And then you actually see the very last line of Matthew is, Behold, I am with you until the end of the age. That as the church pro- progresses and the, and the gospel is spread, that God promises to be with us. So that's a nice little beautiful way. But by far, the most common, and I would say 9 out of 10 kind of scholarly things that you're going to look at, is going to put the description or the, the gospel of, of Matthew as the sort of structure as being organized around five key discourses that Jesus gives. So we had said before that the gospels are the words and deeds of Jesus Christ, right? That they are accurate and historical accounts of the words and deeds, what he actually did and said, and how Matthew and Mark in particular are organizing the material of what Jesus did and said, but in a very specific way. And so the claim is that basically Matthew is putting this forward because not only is Jesus a new son of David, a new David, a new son of David, but Jesus is also showing himself as a new Moses. And that's super key. You'll see that especially early on, that Jesus is the foreshadowing of a new Moses. Um, Whereas David was bringing a kingdom, Jesus is bringing a new kingdom. And as Moses was bringing an exodus, out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land, Jesus is bringing a new exodus, really out of sin itself and into heaven itself, that his work is not just here. And so why that's important is because there are five key discourses that some have appointed to that this is like the new proclamation of the five books of Moses, the Torah. And that's actually, when you really look at it, is pretty incredible. And this is on the, your Gospel of Matthew outline that you have, that the Gospel starts with this prologue where you see the birth and infancy of the Messiah. And then there are five discourses, but there's also five narrations. And the narratives actually lead in preparation for the discourse. So you have this prologue, the birth and the infancy of the Messiah. And then you have this narrative, and that runs from chapter 1 to 2. Then in chapter 3 and 4, we have this preparation for the ministry in Galilee, a narrative, which then moves into this central discourse, chapters 5 through 7, called the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll show 
how Jesus really is showing himself as a new Moses there. Then there's another narrative. We see nine miracle stories, a sort of priestly narrative it's been referred to as. Then the second discourse is what's called the missionary discourse, where he sends out with instructions his, his apostles to go on mission. We come back to another narrative. Um, so the missionary discourse is in chapter 10. Another narrative from chapter 11 and 12, and you can flip your sheet, to another large discourse called the parables discourse. That's chapter 13. Going back to a narrative, a response, and more teachings of Jesus. Ultimately to what's called the ecclesial discourse, or the church discourse, the discourse on the church, in chapter 18. Back to narrative on this journey to Jerusalem and basically controversy in the temple. And then the fifth and final discourse is the eschatological discourse. That means end times discourse, sometimes referred to as the Olivet Discourse because it's on the Mount of Olives, talking about the end of the world and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. And then lastly, the sort of epilogue is in fact the passion and resurrection of Jesus. Okay? So that's by far the most common. You can see these five discourses of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, the Missionary Discourse, the Parable Discourse, the Ecclesial Discourse, and the Olivet Discourse. And we'll more or less loosely use that as a means to go through this gospel because, um, again, nine out of ten of your, um, your commentaries, your scholars, will kind of see that pretty clearly in the text. Okay? All right. With all of that, today we're just going to cover the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to dive into the text. So if you want to grab a Bible and follow along, we'll start in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. So Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Just as we stopped right off the bat with the Gospel of Mark, where Mark starts with the Gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Right here from the start, we also have Matthew's kind of big proclamation. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Now, interestingly enough, that word genealogy is the same word as we get in one, only one other book, at least at the start, um, and that's Genesis. It's the Genesis of Jesus Christ. It's actually the same language that the book of Genesis uses several times, um, to do what's called a toledot, a basically a genealogy to start listing out who are these people and where are they coming from. And so right from the start, Matthew wants to give our eyes and attention that Jesus Christ is in fact a son of David, that he is, an, he is a descendant of David. And the rest of this long introduction with all these big names that you can read another time or have read and thought, wow, I have no idea who these people are, perhaps shows us something, and it's uniquely organized by Matthew, and you see that at the very end because um, it follows a certain standard pattern with a few exceptions where it invites a few extra descriptors of a certain number of people, um, and it's divided into three sets of 14 generations. So you have from Abraham to David, the king, David then to Jeconiah and the Babylonian exile, and then the Babylonian exile, Jeconiah, all the way down to Jesus. And where it ends there is, you know, the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, 
who is called Christ. That's Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. So from Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus is born, who is called Christ, or is called Messiah. And it says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to the Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Okay? So what is he doing here? One, just to understand that at this time of Matthew writing this, there is already this fever pitch that the Messiah is going to come at this specific time. And if you have questions on that, I'd refer you to the book of Daniel that we covered last semester to see how there was a prophecy that this, that this one was going to come and fulfill the faith. But it was essential that this one had to be of the line of David. That was a promise in the Old Testament. And so what Matthew is doing is showing the, the Davidic credentials, essentially, of Jesus. And he is specifically, he's not actually trying to tell you every single person from Abraham to Jesus. A lot of mistakes. He's not. He's selectively showing 14 generations, 14 generations. And most people put that there because actually the word David, and this is a very common practice in the Old Testament, that the Hebrew letters themselves would actually stand for a number. And there was a lot of aspects where the Hebrews would use these sort of numbering, um, um, gematria is what it was called, to kind of show a message. And so the numbers of the names David um, in Hebrew um, are the fourth letter in the alphabet and the sixth letter in the alphabet. And so if you add these two together, four plus six plus four, you get 14. So it's basically writing like David, David, David all the way through this to show he is in fact the son of David. And there's, there's so much that could be said about this because who is in this generation as well? A lot of times there's talk about there are four different women who are in this, um, in this genealogy. And why does Matthew call our attention to them? If he's going to kind of pick and choose who he wants to show, he shows some very interesting characters, Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, and then the wife of Uriah, namely who we know as Bathsheba. And sometimes people point to the fact that most of these women, largely with the exception of Ruth, but she's got a little scandalous story, most of these are kind of sinners. There are some really scandalous stories. So if you actually go to the Old Testament and look up all these, it's very interesting. And yet all of them also have incredible faith at the end of the day. And they're also, uh, many of them are not Jews. So, um, for example, Ruth was not. The wife, wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, was not. To also show a certain universality of this Davidic kingdom. And that was seen in the height of the Davidic kingdom was it wasn't just for the Jewish people. It was for the whole world. All right. But then ultimately, at the end of the day, we will get to the bottom where it is the father of Joseph, who is the husband of Mary, uh, to whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Matthew is very specific that Jesus was born of Mary, not of Joseph in the natural sense that someone is born. And then the question is, okay, well, if that's the case, how is Jesus actually, how is Jesus actually the son of David if he wasn't actually born of Joseph? It seems like we got an issue here, which is actually all the more important to see this next section where we go into who is Joseph and what happened and how is he related to Mary? Because what 
essentially Matthew is doing is showing the legal connection of Jesus to the, to the line of David. And why that's important is because if you go to the Gospel of Luke, you will see different names in Luke's genealogy. And some people say, well, here's a contradiction. These, these can't be true. Where, where Matthew is showing the legal understanding, Luke is showing the biological understanding through the line of Mary. And Mary was an only child. And there's actually a beautiful tradition in the Jewish sense that the woman who is an only child marries into a family. Well, that husband would then become the son of that family as well. So actually, Luke is trying to show us a biological genealogy, but Matthew is showing us just the um, legal. And this is actually very common in ancient texts too. I gave the example uh, last week about Julius Caesar and Caesar Augustus, that Caesar Augustus was the first one in the Roman Empire to be called son of God, when after Julius Caesar dies, he's proclaimed a God. But actually, that's a nephew to uh, uncle relationship. He's an adopted son, but he's still nonetheless son of Augustus' son of Caesar, at least in the text, and that's what you see Matthew doing. Totally consistent with ancient documents. And he's trying to show that, wow, though Jesus is born miraculously, the virgin conception and the virgin birth, that there is nonetheless a real connection with Joseph. And that's actually when you see this, when he goes on now, this is chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to send her away quietly. But as he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary, your wife, for that which she has conceived is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So it's clear that the Holy Spirit is the one who brings about the conception. But there's a very often made mistake, the idea that Joseph and Mary were not married. That Mary is portrayed as this unwed mother, and that is false. Joseph and Mary are absolutely married in the Jewish understanding of what marriage was. And because of this marriage, Jesus truly is born son of David, even though Jesus is of a different tribe than David was by his own certain lineage, often referred to as the son, uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so you actually see that the Messiah is supposed to come from the, from, there's Old Testament prophecies about the, the Messiah as, the, as, the, as, a, as a Judahite, but also, how is he also the son of David? And what's beautiful is you actually see Jesus fulfills all the hats we're looking for. Okay, but what Matthew is clearly trying to show is, more than anything, his Davidic lineage. That's what he's doing concretely, and that's why you have to read this gospel as it is. Okay? All right, from here on out, let's move forward, and we'll move a lot quicker now. Um, chapter 2, we have the visit of the wise men, and this was now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Bethlehem is the city of David. 
also prophesied in Micah. So again, Matthew is showing us who this person is. He's the son of David. He's fulfilling all of these prophecies of this son of David. I always just like to point out chapter 2, verse 10. It's a beautiful line of when the wise men come, there's this line that says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I always just like to point out that there's more joy in this line than any other line in all of the Bible. Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. (laughs) That the joy that this child brings, when we understand who he is, this is why we say the Gospels are good news. They're about the person, and that person brings real joy. Now, the next section is the escape to Egypt. Now, what we start to see is that this new David imagery, which is important, and we don't ever lose that, also kind of makes sense of this new Moses imagery. Because they have to escape through Egypt, and what Matthew is trying to show us is that what happened to Moses and the Israelite people is also going to happen to Jesus. And where the Israelite people failed and did not have the the ability to follow God and see what God was trying to teach them, at least in mass, Jesus will succeed. And so, as Moses was, you know, sought after and tried to be killed, this child is sought after, and they need to escape and to flee. And they flee into Egypt, and then they have to come out of Egypt. And so, Matthew is helping to show us that, you know, in this line, for example, in chapter 2, verse 15, this was to fill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I had called my son. And so what Matthew is showing is there's levels to scripture, especially Old Testament scriptural understanding, that what literally meant just bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt now has a deeper meaning and an actual final fulfillment in Jesus. Okay? And he's just trying to show that. And then you see all these other interesting facts about Um, the Exodus stories. Like, for example, how do they come back? An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. If we know our Old Testament, especially the book of Genesis, there's another Joseph who has dreams who helps save his people. So all of this Matthew is trying to help us see, whoa, these Old Testament stories aren't just like fun stories that just give us moral lessons. They do, but they're pointing to Jesus all the way. Matthew brilliantly brings us together. And shows us, he opens the depths of the scriptures that was not there before Jesus helped the apostles interpret the scriptures. Okay, now let's move forward to chapter 3 because here's where we actually start to get the narrative. So we have John, John and the baptism of Jesus, the temptations of Jesus, and the sort of start of Galilean ministry. And so we have similar lines now to the Gospel of Mark where Jesus does, well actually first John the Baptist comes forward and says, repent for the kingdom of of heaven is at hand. And even just one side note, why the word kingdom of heaven? You actually only see that in Matthew's gospel. The most common explanation is that if this was written for Jewish Christians in particular, the word God was a very specific word not uttered by Jews, the name of God. And so he uses the term kingdom of heaven to describe the same thing. So it's another clue, um, at least that's the most common understanding. But then Jesus gets baptized. We saw that in uh, Mark as well, that the Trinity now we see revealed. The voice of God the Father saying, this is my beloved Son, the Son Jesus, and behold a dove, the Holy Spirit, the manifestation of the Trinity. That in and through baptism, heaven is open to us. In and through baptism, 
that the Trinity dwells in us. All right? Then chapter 4 is really worth talking about. I, I ran through this very quickly in Mark, but the temptations of Jesus. Because as soon as he's baptized, then he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. So you might say, why? How? He just got baptized. Why the temptation? Again, we got to go back to our Old Testament. What happened as soon as the Israelites escape Egypt, the moment that they are finally free of Egypt is passing through the waters of the Red Sea, foreshadowing baptism, where then they are free. And now once you're baptized, everything's good and there's no more temptation? No. Then they are tempted in the desert. And they're tempted for 40 years. Now Moses has some beautiful exact 40 days where he's receiving the law on Mount Sinai for 40 days. But all of a sudden we see Jesus recapitulating the entire history of the people of Israel through his own life. And Matthew wants you to see that. So now he goes to the, to, uh, the desert to be tempted. And I think this is what's so incredible. The temptations of Adam and Eve, of the people in Israel, of even Jesus, are exactly the same temptations we experience today. Namely, three. The temptation, as it's described to Adam and Eve in the garden, is that they look and they see this fruit that was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise. The temptation of being good for food, delight to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise. This is often referred to as the triple concupiscence, that we're drawn towards a lust of the flesh, temptations to kind of carnal pleasures, a lust of the eyes, a temptation to greed, and a temptation to pride. Sometimes it's referred to as the world, the flesh, and the devil. The flesh, the temptations of the flesh, the carnal temptations, um, the world, the temptation to earthly comfort and greed, and the devil, which is just this temptation of pride. And so what are the three temptations of Jesus? You can read them yourselves and you can see, whoa, they're the exact same temptations of Adam and Eve in the garden. They're the exact same temptations of the Israelites. The temptations to turn um, stones into bread. Well, that's the temptation of the good for food. The temptations to be given the whole kingdom, the world. Hmm. Not there's, we've got the greed. And then the temptation to pride, just to worship, um, to worship the devil, right? And it's interesting that Jesus combats these temptations with scripture. And uniquely, he actually points in every temptation, he quotes the book of Deuteronomy, which is this book in the Old Testament from Moses showing where the Israelite people failed in the desert and didn't actually listen to God and failed these temptations. That the original wilderness generation of the Israelites, only three of them actually made it to the promised land. So where the Israelites failed, Jesus is showing, I will not fail. It's kind of cool. You'll see this, especially in this next section in the Sermon on the Mount. So what are our, what are our response to temptations? How do we fight temptations? Obviously through scripture, but what, is, what does Jesus point to and what does the church point to? The classic things that we always do, especially during Lent. We fast for those temptations to food and carnal pleasures. We give alms to give money away to be a detached from greed. And we pray to grow in humility and recognize our dependence on God. So as we move to this next section, the Sermon on the Mount, you will see those 
special, you'll see special commandments and, and instructions on how to fast, how to give alms, and how to pray. So from here, we'll move on to, there's much more that could be said in this section too, especially as Jesus comes from the north and he himself begins to preach that the kingdom of God is at hand. He's drawing on Jeremiah and especially his location where he starts in the north is super important, but we'll pass that for now and move on to this first discourse because here we have Jesus right before it. It says, and he went about all of Galilee teaching in the synagogues and preaching, and there's this word, the gospel of the kingdom. What does that mean? If I'm a Jewish reader, what is the kingdom he's talking about? Well, in one sense, we would have known, and Jews would have known, he's talking about the kingdom of David. This was, in fact, the only major kingdom in the history of Israel. And actually, uniquely, still to this day in the world, it is the longest-lasting kingdom in the history of civilization. That when King David is united king of all of Israel, and then his son Solomon builds a temple in Jerusalem and rules as son of David, this Davidic kingdom lasts for almost 500 years, just short, maybe like 400 or so, right? There is no other kingdom, but ultimately it splits and is divided. It's divided between north and south, where the kingdom in the south, where the temple is, Jerusalem, now is at war in a certain sense with the kingdom of the north. And the north is what's called Israel or Ephraim, and the south is called uh, Judah, all right? And if you want more on that, go to the, the RTB of how to read the prophets, because you have to read the prophets in this understanding of splitting the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So when Jesus is saying he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, he's saying, guess what? There's a new David bringing a new kingdom for both north and south, but also for the whole world, okay? And that's why you also see then crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This new kingdom is starting to be formed. All right. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 are what's called the Sermon on the Mount, where we see some of the main moral teachings of Christianity, but we also see Jesus giving a new law as a new Moses for this new kingdom. Okay? So particularly you see Jesus here as a new Moses, because that starts in chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So why does he go up on the mountain? Because that's what Moses did. Moses went up on the mountain to give the law to the people. And while the Old Testament law was, in fact, the Ten Commandments, the New Testament law is the Beatitudes. And it's a little bit different law than we would expect. First of all, it's not this, thou shalt not. It's actually a positive. Not thou shalt not, it's blessed are you, or perhaps a more literal translation, happy are you, the pursuit of happiness. And what you're going to start to see is this kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming is all sorts of flipped, <laughs> not a kingdom that we would expect. And he has to help lead his apostles and disciples in understanding what is meant by this new kingdom. And so the Beatitudes is the law of the, the new law of the new kingdom where everything's kind of flipped on its head. Where, where, am I, where do I find happiness and blessing? In being poor, in mourning, in meek, being hungry and thirsty for righteousness, in being merciful, being pure of heart, being peacemakers, and being persecuted. 
And that's where happiness is found. Totally flipping its head. It's going to get worse as we go throughout the gospel. But you actually see how this is the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes are ordered such that the outside ones, poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's chapter 5, verse 3. Chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So these are the new law, the new commandments, or the, new, the new commandments for the new kingdom. And what's right in the middle? Righteousness and mercy. At the end of the day, what are the Beatitudes pointing to? They're pointing to Jesus. If you were to replace the word blessed are thee and repeat, you have a beautiful description of the face of Christ and the life of Christ. Jesus is poor in spirit. Jesus mourns. Jesus is meek. Jesus hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Jesus is merciful. Jesus is pure in heart. Jesus is a peacemaker. And Jesus is certainly persecuted for righteousness' sake. So you start to see that, whoa, there's a lot more here than meets the eye. This new law, this new kingdom, it's a little bit different. And really, at the end of the day, we can say happiness, true blessing, is only found in Jesus. One of the key takeaways there. But he continues more. And then he goes on about salt and light. I'll skip over that. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden. Um, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So chapter 5, verse 17, he says, I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. I'll repeat that again. For 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So this is a key understanding of how do we understand the old law and the new law especially within the kingdom and especially within the church. So Jesus is what he's saying is, I'm not here to just say that none of this mattered, but I'm here to show you that the old law was necessary but insufficient. I'm going to move from this imperfect thou shalt not, though it's true and essential, to actually a righteousness and a perfection that you don't even know about yet. Basically, that true salvation is not just being saved from sin, though that's the first step, but it's actually being saved for righteousness. So what Christ is trying to do here is not get rid of the old law, but show that the old law was actually pointing to him all along and can only be fulfilled in him. And in fact, of all the perfect laws of the Old Testament, of everything that was required and asked of, only Jesus um, perfectly fulfills them. And actually that's what he's showing is how he is the one who is fulfilling the law. And so you start to see is actually six statements where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, for example, in 521, you have heard that it is said, you shall not kill, and whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. And then Jesus says, but I say to you. And that continues, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart. It was said, whoever divorces his wife, let her give a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces except on unchastity makes her an adulteress. You have heard it said, you shall not swear. But I say to you, do not swear at all. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist anyone. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And he ends this with chapter 5, verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So he's showing us what Christian perfection is. It's ultimately fulfilled in him. 
So is he saying, by the fact that he's saying it was written, he's saying, he's drawing upon scripture, saying this Old Testament is scripture, but then he's saying, I say to you, I give you a new law. He's actually asserting his divinity because the law is given by God. So by him saying this, he's saying, I am God, and here is the new law because I'm the new king, Esher in this new kingdom. Moses was pointing to me. David was pointing to me. Here's the new law, the law of perfection, which is only in Christ. Then chapter six and seven, how do I become perfect? Short answer, I become like Jesus. And what was Jesus? Poor, humble, and chaste. Poverty, chastity, humility. Prayer, fasting, almsgiving. These same themes come back. And so what is the first section in chapter six? How do I give alms? Then chapter six, verse five, how do I pray? And he gives us the Our Father. Then 516, how do I fast? And then it talks about how you can't serve two masters, to not be anxious about anything, to not judge, to ask, to seek, to knock, to seek the narrow gate. You start to see, wow, perfection really is through Christ. And it's the same temptations and poverty, chastity, and humility are the things that we're called to, to withstand the temptations of the world and to be like Jesus. Okay? And that's where happiness lies. I'll jump down to um, chapter 7, verse 21, because you start to realize when you really read this through, you're like, I can't do this. <laughs> there's no way. I mean, there's some really kind of negative readings um, of this passage where some people would say, like, all that Jesus is trying to show us is that we can't fulfill the commandments. And I just think that's a very bad reading. I think he's trying to show us that actually by his grace, we can become like him. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So he commands us knowing that it's possible. It's difficult. We can't do it by our own power. And then I love chapter 7, verse 24. It's one of my favorite passages to show how the levels of scripture work. Because he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on that rock. If you go back to the very first RTB episode, it's called The Bible and the Word of God, and I showed you the levels of Scripture, that there's a literal meaning and a spiritual meaning. And this is a, my favorite passage to show that the literal meaning is he's just saying, yeah, you got to build your house on rock. But the spiritual meaning of this is so deep because he says you have to be like a wise man who built his house. Well... In the Old Testament, there was a wise man named Solomon. He was known for wisdom. And what did Solomon do? He built the temple, the house of God. The son of David built the house of God. And it's going to survive even the storms. And who is Jesus? You'll see later on, he refers to himself as a new Solomon. The new son of David. Who's going to do what? Build his house on rock. The rock of the Old Testament or the rock of Peter. And so Jesus is the true wise man building his house upon rock. And you're going to see that that's the church, which is an image, or it would be better to say the Old Testament kingdom of David is the foreshadowing of the church, built upon the rock of Peter. All right. Much more could be said, but let's continue on. Chapter 8, we go back to narrative. We see a number of miracles, healing stories, we start to kind of go back to that question that we saw in Mark. Who is this Jesus? 
He cleanses a leper. He heals a centurion. Um, you start to see again, that's a universal thing. In chapter 8, verse 11, he says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and sit at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. It's pretty dark stuff saying that, wait a second, perhaps those that are going to accept this message may not be the people first offered this message. Then Jesus heals uh, many at Peter's house. There's followers of Jesus. He calms the storm at sea to show he's got power. He heals the demoniacs. He heals a paralytic. Chapter 9, verse 9, we have the call of Matthew, the author of the gospel, who is the tax collector. And Jesus comes and calls Matthew and says, follow me. Beautiful. And he follows. The power of the word, the power of the invitation of Christ. Um, this great line, chapter 9, verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I came not to call righteous, but sinners. This is drawing upon Hosea. It's actually in every gospel to understand that what he's actually calling us to is covenant fidelity, is faithfulness. He wants our hearts more than anything else. It's not just the ritualistic sacrifices of old that Jesus wants, that God wants. It's the sacrifice of the heart, the pure sacrifice, which we'll see what that sacrifice is later. Moving on, there's another healing. A girl is restored to life. Jesus heals uh, two blind men. Jesus heals a man who is mute. All of a sudden then, this beautiful line, chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching what? What is the message that Jesus is preaching? The gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and infirmity. He's preaching the kingdom. All right? And so then what happens is we get to chapter 10, and now we have the second discourse, the missionary discourse. You could also call this the priestly discourse. Because what does Jesus do as king of this new kingdom? He shares his authority. Chapter 10, verse 1, He called 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every infirmity. So Matthew's showing us that Jesus has the power over these diseases, infirmities, and the demons. And now he's sharing that with 12 specific men that refer to the 12 tribes of Israel, the Old Testament, now into the New Testament. And what are these 12 supposed to preach? Well, chapter 10, verse 7. Preach as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leopards. So basically that the kingdom of David is being restored and I'm doing it. And Jesus is doing it through his 12 apostles, giving them the same authority. You actually see in chapter 10, verse 40, he who receives you receives me and he who receives me receives him who sent me. That this authority given to the apostles is real. It's authentic. And that still applies in our church today, actually. The authority of these apostles live on, you'll see this later in the second half, through the bishops of the church, the successors to the apostles, saying that they're sent with the authority of Jesus, and we're called to listen to that authority. All right, chapter 11, we're back to the narrative. So I could say a lot more about chapter 10 in that missionary discourse, but you just start to see the key point is we've got this kingdom, in that first, here's the new law for the new kingdom, and now the authority of that kingdom is being shared. Chapter 11, we go back to narrative. 
and a number of different things happen. Um, messengers are about John the Baptist, where people are again asking that question, who is this perfect person? Who is this Jesus? And then there's a great line in chapter 11, verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. This line may not seem that much, but basically Jesus is saying something crazy and scandalous in the Jewish line, saying prophecy and the law, the Old Testament law, which was everything that the Israelite faith was built off of, is now done. It's over. It was up until John the Baptist. Why? Because I'm the one who always prophesied. He is interpreting the Old Testament in light of himself and sharing that with his people. Chapter 11, verse 25, we show this intimacy that Jesus has with God the Father. Um, could go more about the Trinitarian understanding of who Jesus is, revealing the fullness of God as Trinity, as love. But it's just a beautiful line here. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden light. Beautiful passage in and of itself. Understand that God gives rest to the weary. But also what you start to see in this next couple section, and unfortunately I probably won't have time to go through every single one of these, but are there's all of these Old Testament references to especially the time of the king of David. Where especially, you can see in 1 Kings 12, where there was this talk of this king Rehoboam who was unsure if he should, he basically took over, King Rehoboam took over as the king of Judah in Jerusalem. And he was, he basically had advisors, old advisors and young advisors. And the question was, how should I treat these people? And the young people said, you should show them your power and authority and give them a heavy yoke. And the old advisors said, you should be merciful. And what did he do? He gave them the heavy yoke. <laughs> and what happened? The kingdom splits north and south at Rehoboam. Rehoboam is then king of the south, and Jeroboam is king of the north. And what is Jesus saying? <laughs> you chose wrong, Rehoboam, but also my yoke is easy, my burden light. I am the king who will actually unite and not divide. I am the one that you can follow and find peace. Because then in chapter 12, you see him picking grain on the Sabbath, and what does he reference? How David picked grain in the Sabbath. All of a sudden, you see these Old Testament kingdom references that probably when you hear these at Mass, you wouldn't ever think to connect them to the Old Testament, but they're all there. He says, have you not read what's in the law? The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He says something greater than the temple is here. Jesus says that he is greater than the temple. I think my favorite is chapter 12, verse 9. This man with a withered hand. He heals a man with a withered hand. Why is that so important? Well, the king of the north that separated from Rehoboam was a guy named Jeroboam. And you know what happens to him when he separates from the north? He actually has his hand withered. And so there's actually a psalm, 2 Psalm 137, that says, If I forget you, Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. And so this King Jeroboam of the north is the one who forgot the importance of the unity of the kingdom in the south in Jerusalem. And what happened? His right hand withers. And what does Jesus do? He heals a man with a withered right hand and gives him this hand back. 
saying, I am here to restore the kingdom. It's all about the kingdom, and especially the Davidic kingdom, because there is unity in the Davidic kingdom, especially through the son of David, Solomon. But after Solomon, there's nothing but division. And so the son of David has to restore all this unity. Closing up here, we see chapter 12, verse 23. All the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Could this really be the one? They're asking themselves this question. And what does Jesus say? Knowing their thoughts, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. The kingdom of Israel was divided against itself and set into ruin. But Jesus is here to restore the Davidic kingdom, both for Israel and for the whole world. And they say, we want a sign. Jesus says, chapter 12, verse 38, an evil, sorry, verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And then he says, he actually gives these reference, the men of Nineveh will arise and judge. The queen of the south will arise and judge. From the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So the sign of Jonah, we'll cover this a little bit more in depth, especially when you see Peter, but it's twofold. It's the sign of the death and resurrection of Jesus as Jonah is in the belly of the whale three days and rises. But it's not just that sign because the sign of Jonah is that even though he tried to run away in a sense, he was successful. The people of Nineveh converted and followed and they were non-Jews, non-Israelites. The repentance of the nations to the God of Israel. That's where the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba is this queen in the Old Testament that comes to Solomon, recognizing his wisdom. And so Jesus is pointing out that it's actually the outsiders in a many sense that are going to recognize the true kingdom of God, not necessarily the insiders. And that's going to be a huge sign. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Solomon was known for his wisdom, his insight, and the whole world would come. There's an Old Testament word for in Hebrew, what Solomon did were wisdom and proverbs called mashal. What's really cool, what we'll start for next week, is that chapter 13 starts the parable discourse. Whereas Old Testament, there's wisdom literature. Now we have this new Solomon giving us his wisdom literature, the parables. And these parables will help us understand more and more the kingdom. What does this actual mean? What does it mean that the kingdom of David has been fulfilled. What is this kingdom of God going to look like and how will we recognize it? So that is the gospel of Matthew for 12 chapters. And next week, read the rest of the gospel and we'll see this come to a close. Continue to answer that question. Or continue to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom. But then also, again, read these sections in light of the church as the kingdom of Christ present in sacrament. As the kingdom of heaven, we can say, on earth, which shares in the kingdom of heaven. One church, one kingdom. But what does that kingdom look like? That's the rest of Matthew. Let's close in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Thanks for listening to this episode of RTB. If you have questions you would like answered on the podcast, you can email them to Father Tim at tmergen at uwcatholic.org. That's T-M-E-R-G-E-N at uwcatholic.org. Thanks, and be assured of my prayers for you as you read the Bible. Thank you.